never been terribly enamored with the history of the Civil War. I'm very interested in the lead-up to it, the period we often refer to as sectionalism, although a lot of other important stuff happened then, and especially in Reconstruction, the period immediately after the Civil War. But when I had the opportunity to attend the Lincoln Forum last year, I heard from some amazing scholars, one of whom was Gary Gallagher, who is just one of the most renowned Civil War academics and writers. He had the audacity to attend a conference held the weekend of the anniversary of Gettysburg, held in Gettysburg with people who were there to rededicate the battlefield and cemetery, to tell the audience gathered there that Gettysburg was kind of overrated. I was struck by his candor and sense of humor. And then when I heard he was going to be the lead presenter at a summer conference at the Now Center at the University of Virginia, I, I had to apply. I spent this last week enraptured by Dr. Gallagher's presentations. He would start every session off with Q&A, happy to answer any question that his 24 students asked of him. And although he had a, an agenda, a syllabus, he had no problem deviating from it or delaying sections for later if something was more pressing in the mind of one of his students. The lecture discussions were filled with laughs and insight, and it ranks up there as one of the best ever professional development experiences I've had. And I've had a lot. The icing on the cake was that Gary agreed to do this podcast. I designed my questions to approximate the major themes of the week, minus the incredible guided tour of the Petersburg battlefield. Any teacher listening won't get quite the experience I had, but undoubtedly will learn a lot from this exchange. And non-teachers should prepare to have their minds blown. Gary Gallagher, welcome to Bob's Just Asking. Happy to be here. Let's uh, start with nomenclature. Uh, people use North and South interchangeably with the Union and the Confederacy, but there are issues with that. Uh, after I heard Ty Sejula uh, speak at the Lincoln Forum last year, I've been using the United States in lieu of uh, the North or even the Union, and I've noticed that you tend to do that as well. Can you talk about the importance of the terms we use? Sure, I will. I started using United States about a decade ago. Uh, and, and I use it. I use it in union um, interchangeably. But I, I I never use North anymore unless I slip up when I'm referring to what is actually the United States. The the North versus the South is inaccurate, even though many people use it because there were 15 slaveholding states in 1860, but four of them stayed in the United States. There are only 11 Confederate states, so the the Union. The United States, it contains mostly free states, but it has four slaveholding states. So it simply isn't. And there are a lot of uh, white people living in the Confederacy who don't support the Confederacy, even though they live in the South. And the, and the millions of African-Americans in the Confederacy do not support the Confederacy. So to, to say this, to use the South and Confederacy as synonyms is simply inaccurate and misleading as far as I'm concerned. It's much more accurate to talk about the United States versus the Confederacy. And, and not, so, I mean, even in another sense, never mind when we use the United States, but never should use the South as a, as a synonym for the Confederacy unless 
you just want a very word usage and you've already given readers a heads up, uh, for example, because the South, again, contains these four states that remain loyal to the United States, contains four million African-Americans, and they are not Confederates. Um, so anyway, that's that's why I use United States. I don't use North versus South. And I always am careful about how I use just South uh, and never as a, as a synonym for the Confederacy. Sure. So more of a, a political terminology rather than geographic. Yes. Yes. All right. Now, this one, you could probably talk for an hour, but I... I, I won't. <laughs> what would you say are some of the most enduring myths that pass as universal truths about the Civil War? Not not the fringe things, but the, the things that just really core things. Yeah, I'll just... I'll, I'll name three. I'll just name three, and there are lots of them, but... but um, one is that the Civil War wasn't about that, that there would have been a civil war and secession absent issues relating to slavery. That, that I would put as number one, which is absolutely wrong. Take slavery out of the picture. There's no secession. There's no and just go on, go on from there. A second misconception from my view is that United States victory and emancipation were inevitable in this war, that because the United States had so much more of everything, the Confederates never really had a chance. And I think, and I'll, then I'll just use one of my pet ones. I could talk about larger ones again. The third one I'll offer is that Gettysburg was the great turning point of the war. And after Gettysburg, it just you point straight toward Appomattox. It's just a question of time. Are relating to slavery and inevitable United States victory as far as I'm concerned? Okay, I've got questions about those second and the second and third ones for sure. Okay. For me, I mean, for me, the first one at this point isn't worth talking about. I know that there are millions of people who, who yeah. you know, who who still hold that, who still and hold they're not going to be persuaded, Bob. That's the point. I mean, right. they're not people who are going to. Once you give them a careful explanation, they're going to say, "Oh, I never thought about it that way." They're still going to say it wasn't about slavery, right? And 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 ultimately, uh, I should I will share with you at least. I mean, granted, I teach in. New Jersey, I, you know, I teach in, I was going to say the North. It is the North. It is the North. <laughs> I, I teach in the Northern half of the country and my students, I've never had a student ever argue that it wasn't about slavery. They know, they know that that much has, has permeated through to them at this point. So we're good on one. So the second one was uh, about the war itself. Well, the, the question of inevitability and inevitability. Yes. And I'm going to first I'm going to address the whether the war itself was inevitable. You've argued that it that it wasn't necessarily. Um, and I'm not I'm not thoroughly convinced. I need you to mm -hmm. to do more to convince me. And I want to preface my statement with the admission that, of course, war wasn't inevitable had Lincoln said, go in peace. I mean, that that would be that that would have been. Well there, you've already you've already made a great big juicy concession there, Bob. Because my, my that's, but go ahead, go ahead, and then I'll have my I'll have my moment. <laughs> well, that's okay. So that's that's where I want to uh, focus. If that is off the table, I struggle with seeing the major enslaver states ever accepting gradual emancipation or even compensated emancipation. Um, well, they're certainly not going to accept it in 1860. That there's, we agree completely on that. The yeah. question to me is, I mean, there are a number of things have to click in place before war becomes inevitable. Mm -hmm. uh, I think clearly, 
a, a great, a, a, a sort of final showdown about this question, political showdown about the question was, was inevitable. And there are all of these precursors to it, all the famous compromises. These are all, they're, they're arguing about slavery. They're really not arguing about slavery. They're arguing about the expansion of slavery for 30 years, from for 40 years, from 1820 until 1860. That is another thing. I'm going to, I'm going to rewind just for a second. Another misconception I think is it's it's I wouldn't call it exactly a misconception. It's a tendency to conflate attitudes toward slavery and attitudes toward black people, which often come together with the assumption that anyone who is opposed to slavery must be in favor of equality for African Americans. That we can either talk about that later or not. That that is a significant misreading of the past. But coming back to your inevitability, I think what you need to to get war in in 1861 with it focuses on something you have to have somebody in the white house who reaches a point where they're they're say okay this far and no more and we did have that in lincoln even though many of his counselors both political and military were telling him to let sumter go but then you also had to have on the other side someone who was going to say we absolutely can't do that and so we'll shoot at them rather than have them come and reinforce this sport you need all these things that are in place that have to happen a certain way. And then you have to have a populace in the United States that is so upset about this that they're willing to engage in what they thought would be a short war in the first place and then a longer one. Mm -hmm. I, I guess my strongest argument would be that I didn't think that war was inevitable in 1861. It's not even inevitable after secession. Certain things have to happen and we know they happen. And so it seems, so it seems, mm -hmm. okay, from South Carolina's secession in December 1860, it's a straight line to the firing on Fort Sumter, to the mustering of soldiers, to and now you're at First Bull Run uh, in July of 1861. It's uh, certainly strong arguments, opposition, unhappiness with the other side. That's all inevitable, and it's been going on for 40 years already. But the question is, do they actually end up in this seismic war? That one, I'm not, we may just have to agree to disagree about that. <laughs> okay. Um, a the, and, and turning point, uh, Gettysburg being the, the turning point of the war. It seems like every teacher I know has taught it that way. And you said you, said you wouldn't even put it in the top five. I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. But it's, it's not only teachers. I mean, popular culture really puts it that way very powerfully, whether you're talking about films whether you're talking about 24-hour uh, newscast in the midst of the sesquicentennial of the war, major, uh, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post. I mean, it's it's Gettysburg, Gettysburg, Gettysburg. <laughs> it just is. It, it, um, Ken Burns, anybody who watched Ken Burns would think that. Anybody who read the novel Killer Angels would think that. It just, uh, anybody who read Intruder in the Dust by William Faulkner would think that. I mean, it's, I have I, I suffer no illusions when it comes to my ability to get people to quit thinking about Gettysburg as the great turning point of the war, even though it wasn't. Nothing really changed because of the Battle of Gettysburg. Even in July 1863, it's not the most important thing that happens. U.S. Grant's capture of Vicksburg within the context of the moment was far more important than what happened at Gettysburg. It had far greater ramifications in both the United States and the Confederacy than Gettysburg did. Uh, you also, you, I think, if you had to pick one, you've you've been you've said the Seven Days. Uh, I would pick, but in terms of a single battle, 
that had the greatest influence uh, in, in, in very broad strokes on what happened during the war, I would pick the seven days because, and I, I know we don't have time for a lot of this, George B. McClellan is about to capture Richmond after United States forces have also won a sweeping series of victories in the Western theater that captured New Orleans, they've captured Nashville, they've captured Memphis. The Confederacy is falling to pieces in the West. The largest army of the Republic is five miles outside the Confederate capital. And McClellan doesn't get in because the Confederate commander gets wounded, Joseph Johnston, Robert E. Lee replaces him and Lee wins the battle of the seven days, which does three things. The one thing it does is it reverses this tide, this sweeping tide of United States success and signals to Europe, for example, that the Confederacy is winning the war. It brings Robert E. Lee to the fore. And Lee is the main reason the war lasted longer because of his success as a commander. And on the United States side, it persuaded Abraham Lincoln and pushed Congress even faster than it had been going toward the conclusion that you could only defeat the Confederacy if you attacked slavery. You have to get rid of slavery, which is a huge prop that enables the Confederates to maintain their resistance. And so you have within three weeks of the end of the seven days of McClellan's retreat, the second confiscation act from Congress, and then Lincoln's announcement to his cabinet that he is going to issue a proclamation of emancipation. Those are huge outcomes from the seven days. There's nothing comparable that comes out of the Battle of Gettysburg. And I'll just throw one more in here with huge consequences, and that is William Tecumseh Sherman's capture of Atlanta goes a long way toward re-electing the Republicans in 1864. And it's that re-election that means the war will be continued and that emancipation will be a non-negotiable element of United States victory. So there are two battles, I won't go through my whole list, <laughs> that are far more important okay. than Gettysburg. Now, I know you're not a fan of counterfactuals, but if I may be permitted one. But I just gave you two, yes, no, <laughs> no. go ahead. Well, yeah. let's, say, let's say McClellan wins at the okay. Seven Days Lee surrenders and the war is wrapped up in 1862. There'd be no 13th Amendment, let alone Emancipation Proclamation. Would not. Nope. So if the Confederacy were readmitted at this point, what do you think? What, I, mean, I don't know how far you would want to go with this, but what do you think would have happened? Well, I think that you would have had, it wouldn't have been exactly bringing back the status quo ad in Bellum, but it would have been very close because George B. McClellan would have been the great Union war hero. And he was very specific. He laid out in a letter to Lincoln, his view, he, for him, this is a war for union. This is not a war against slavery. It is not a war that involves any level of real retribution against former Confederates. It is this, he, he envisioned the softest kind of war possible that will persuade the rebels to come back. So I think you would have had a reconstitution of the United States with slavery still intact. Slavery was still in Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, Delaware, all the states that had stayed loyal to the Union. It would have remained where it was. And it would have continued then as this, this poisonous issue uh, eating away at the vitals of the Republic. That's what would have happened. And I think it wouldn't have meant things would have really been resolved it just would have meant they would have continued in a different way with the white South, the slaveholding South, even more emboldened than it had been before, I think. Um, McClellan is heavily criticized for bungling advantages that he had yes. being overly cautious. Yes. Yes. Uh, but he was also immensely popular uh, among his troops. Um, you say, and you said that he's critical. He was critical in developing the culture 
of the Army of the Potomac. Absolutely crucial. Yes. Can you elaborate on that, please? I think I think I detect two questions there. Why was he so popular when he failed at these two critical times? And what did he he what George B. McClellan did and what his men never that they were they embraced him and they loved him the way soldiers can love commanders. He took the detritus of a, of a defeated Union force from first bull run and built it into this great military instrument, the Army of the Potomac. Uh, and he named it. He picked the sub commanders. He would ride among the camps and show himself and talk to the men. And he made them feel like soldiers and told them they were soldiers and told them how important they were. And and they, they returned. Uh, I mean, they reciprocated by embracing him and that that never really went away um and so i think that's why he was popular even though he lost the battle of the seven and he also knew he also let them know all the time that he hated carnage on a battlefield he really felt the losses that his army suffered and they believed him and that was true as well and i think that helped make him uh more popular but he did fail. He failed in his two great moments, as far as I'm concerned, at the seven days, which he absolutely should have won. And then at Antietam, he failed to follow up a victory where he had Lee and his army absolutely on the ropes and he let them get away. And um, which just made Lincoln was beside himself with that failure. Uh, I mean, there are lots of little things really not to like about McClellan, which I won't wallow in right now. But <laughs> But he did. And he also... His vision of the war was a vision that was very widely embraced. This is a war for union. And he said that again and again and again. Uh, his kind of union was not the kind of union that other people would want. The old union, he's fine with the old union. Uh, he's a Democrat. And so I think he's well attuned to lots of people. He builds a great army, makes the men feel like soldiers, gives them real pride in themselves. And and But he creates this very cautious culture averse to risk taking, uh, partly because he felt beleaguered by Republican politicians who were just willing, waiting for him to make a misstep so they could pounce on him in the Committee on the Conduct of the War, which he had to go uh, give testimony before. He hated that. Uh, he knew the Republicans hated him. A number of the Republicans out loud, people like Zachariah Chandler of Michigan, a senator who was a radical Republican, they said out loud, he, McClellan's a traitor. Not just McClellan isn't the, the ideal general. He is a traitor who isn't, he doesn't even really want to beat the rebels. That's how they viewed hmm. his go softly on the rebels approach to the war. Of the many things that I've learned that I've been teaching wrong is the... <laughs> <laughs> is the yes, I learned something from you last week that I was <laughs> teaching wrong as well. We all learn from these seminars. <laughs> The relative merits of the military leaders on either side. For years, I've used a worksheet that indicated that Southern generals were vastly su superior to the to the uh, Union or United States generals, uh, and and that frankly played into my presentation of when Lincoln goes through the series of uh, replacements for McClellan. Sure, um, sure. Can you help dispel that misconception? I, I can, and if I had. If I had decided to go to one more great misconception, that one's really more important than that Gettysburg's the turning point. That is still a very widely held notion about military leadership on uh, that the Confederates had better generals, but the Yankees had more of everything. And so they won. Here, here's the deal. This both sides drew their their leaders from precisely the same pool. 
of potential commanders who had precisely the same backgrounds in that this is a West Pointers war. They all went to West Point. They took the same classes from the same professors. Their great testing ground was the war with Mexico. They served under Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor, same body of experiences in Mexico. The notion that just because of where you live, despite this completely uh, uh, similar background in terms of doctrine, training, and experience, you one side would have better generals than the other just doesn't make sense. And they didn't. They were very similar. Although in the end, there is one actual union advantage in this, in that the United States found four guys, in my view, who could really command an army effectively, Grant, Sherman, Philip Sheridan, and George Thomas. And the Confederates only ever found one. Robert E. Lee, and that's a problem for the Confederacy. Now, the reason that this misconception is still around is, is the focus on the Eastern theater, the focus on the, on the theater where the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia are. And there, people will say you've got Lee, Stonewall Jackson, James Longstreet, Jeb Stewart on one side, and you've got Joseph Hooker, Ambrose Burnside, George McClellan, Urban McDowell. I mean, you can, it's sort of a parade of clowns on one side is how it's often presented. <laughs> and these Confederate paladins on the other side. You can do the same thing in the West. You have Grant and Sherman and Thomas and Sheridan on the Union side. You've got Braxton Bragg, Leonidas Polk. I mean, you, it's, it's just a, it's really an interesting question of where the focus has made it seem to be one thing, when in fact, the pools of uh, leadership are almost identical, but the U.S. in the end gets more army commanders who can really function. Okay, so... We're going to switch to the other inevitability question. Okay. Um, and I, I hadn't, I was unfamiliar with the term Appomattox syndrome. Is that your coining or is yeah, that that's somewhere? mine? It's okay. Yes. So as which as I understand it, is the notion that the Confederacy was doomed from the outset, uh, something that the lost cause reenvisionment of history used to romanticize the war. Yep. Um, it's critical that people understand we're not talking about the we. No one ever talked about the Confederacy conquering the United States but rather the, the main goal of just getting the United States to say, fine, you can have right. your independence. Um, so, Mike, what I'm first going to ask you is, at what point do, during the war do you think that conf that Confederate victory was closest with that kind of goal being in I, mind? I, that, that let me just very quickly say what I mean by Appomattox syndrome is beginning at the end of the story with knowledge of United States victory and emancipation accomplished assuming their inevitability, and then reading backward in the evidence to find things that sort of point toward those outcomes, mm -hmm. rather than reading forward, and, and that gives it an inevitable sense, rather than reading forward in the evidence and finding out that at many points in the war, it didn't seem at all inevitable to either side that you were going to get to those places. Um, okay. So that's what I, it's just, in other words, it's a plea for people who want to understand the past to read forward in evidence rather than backward in evidence from the outcome that you know, and then assuming that that outcome is the way that you're, that that's where you're going to end up. And then, and now, now make me zero in on another part of that. What part do you want me to really focus on? Well, you know, if, if Confederate victory would have been the United States relenting and saying, fine, go, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not going to keep you. Go ahead. Um, what, when were they closest? Oh, okay. Here, here's one more little bit of, of, of setup. And then that, I think it's hard to get people to understand, but they need to, 
that the conditions for victory for the United States were much, much more difficult than the conditions for victory for the Confederacy. A tie is as good as a win for the Confederates. All they need to do is persuade the civilian population of the United States that it's it's not worth it in either human or material costs to continue to try to suppress this rebellion. I think the Confederates came close three times to achieving that. And all of them had to do with victories won by Lee and his army. I think the first time is in the early fall of 1862, after the seven days and second bull run, two big Confederate victories, and then Lee invades the United States for the first time, ends up at Antietam and, and, and retreats. I think that's one. That's when the Europeans came the closest to trying to mediate an end to the conflict. The second time comes in the very late spring and early summer of 1863 after Lee's victories at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville and when emancipation and the national conscription law of of March 63 were really roiling the political scene in the United States in the midst of these defeats. That's the second time. But the most dangerous time for the United States was in July and August of 1864. Uh, in the wake of the Overland campaign between Lee and Grant, when casualties were off the charts, even by Civil War standards, Richmond didn't fall, Atlanta hadn't fallen, and, and I think, and, and Lincoln very famously in a cabinet meeting indicated that he didn't think the Republicans would be reelected, and he didn't think the Democrats would win the war. The Republicans had to win the war before the Democrats would take office. That is the absolute nadir of Union national uh, morale, I think, July and August 64. Okay, so we're going to take a, a, a break from the specific historical content and actually give you, I'm going to give you a pedagogy question. Okay. Uh, now, you've identified historical contingency or complexity as a hugely important thing for us mm-hmm. to consider as we look at the war. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you also want to be careful not to slip into the minutiae on yes. a couple of occasions, I, I noted you you stopping yourself, saying, eh, "I'm not going to complicate it. I'm not going." So, like, when do you choose? Like, what what goes into your thought processes about, uh, you know, I, I I I there's a caveat here, but it's not worth my time, or it's not worth the student's time. It's re, re, Bob. The 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 thing the teaching for 35 years, the one th- and 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 doing research and writing for 35 years. The, the single most important lesson I've learned is that however complicated I thought something was, it's more complicated than that when I first, when I really get into it. it. Drives me crazy now that Americans really prefer, and they get part of this from our our sort of chattering class, they want a nice, clean, simplistic, almost cartoonish version of the past that makes clear, very clear, these are the good ones, these are the bad ones, these are the people we don't like, these are the people we do like. And just just kind of give me something that I can tweet about this and I'll understand everything I need to know. And history just isn't that way. It's far messier than that. I want my students to know that it's very complicated. You can't come at it that way. But there's also a danger, as you suggest, of getting to a tipping point. We're trying to evoke this complexity. People just finally tune you out. Oh, great. Okay. Well, I thought this, but now you've You've given me 13 factors that complicate your original generalization. So it isn't even a generalization anymore. (laughs) So I have to decide what are the big things that I want people to take away from here and hope that I can complicate them as much as possible. But the big things are it is about slavery, stupid. That's why we have a secession and so forth. 
it's the war. I mean, we've already, I've already tipped my hand in some ways here. Uh, the United States victory was not inevitable. Uh, you so the, the emancipation is very the process of emancipation is very complicated it isn't something lincoln does it isn't something congress does it isn't something african americans yearning to free be free on the ground do in isolation there are all of these factors that are part of the process of emancipation we need to understand that it's complicated but we can't make it so complicated well yes the the uh, the Emancipation Proclamation did this, but now, but it didn't do this and this and this and this and this and this and the Second Confiscation Act. And yes, there were still enslaved people. And it can get so complicated so quickly. Somebody who wants to really engage with it can get into this complexity, get as deep into the weeds as they want. But I, what I want to do is make sure that they have the, some of these basic broad stroke things down firmly about the Civil War era, and then they can get as complicated as they want. And, and a lot of it is combating misconceptions with good, strong, sound generalizations that aren't as simple as they sound, if I can make them understand that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. For sure. I, and, and in fact, uh, sort of segueing into the next question, when you brought up the three different groups that uh, played a role in um, in emancipation, I know that uh, earlier in the week you you added a fourth group, which I hadn't really considered. The, the army, the, yes, yeah. the, yes. I didn't want to get us. I thought we might head down a rabbit hole there, but no, you cannot. You cannot. That's another thing that I mean that I would hope no one who ever came out of my course on the Civil War would be able to conceive of emancipation as a success without the role played by the United States Army. And here's where things get complicated, even though many of the so white soldiers in that army couldn't care less about black people. And yet they aren't, William Tecumseh Sherman's a perfect example. He, he is not an anti-slavery person by any stretch of the imagination, but his army becomes an engine of emancipation as it sweeps through Georgia and then up through the Carolinas. Okay, so uh, now I'm jump. I'm going to jump to a different question. Come and circle We're back. We're going and, to field orders number fifteen. Yes, we are. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So I didn't know much about Sherman, other than I mean, the only thing I remember I, I remembered was at the time years a number of years ago was Total War, uh, which I'm already I've already changed quite how I, you know how I uh, how I approach that. But uh, I was first fascinated to learn of his breakdown in the middle of the war. Um, 61 summer of 61 yeah which certainly paints a very different picture i mean uh, for one thing you know I, I mean i think um it's very easy for um, i'm thinking mainly of a high school teacher you know of high school teachers to uh, to give students the the a very you know a caricature of each general and sure. when you have Sherman burning his way across Georgia. It's irresistible to do that. I mean, yeah. and students love it. <laughs> <laughs> but this this really, you know, this, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, humanizes him. Yes. Um, you know, the the and, and the quotation that uh, if you could uh, repeat it, I don't know off the top of my head you know, the, or the, the gist of it where he what he said about Grant. Yes. I mean, Grant, we have Sherman because of U.S. Grant. I mean, Sherman's breakdown when he considered suicide, and we know that because he said it, when when a Cincinnati newspaper accused him of being insane, uh, I mean, he thought he was finished. 
And then he got put under Grant. Sherman couldn't stand the pressure of being the person ultimately in charge. And, and once he was under Grant, it liberated him to become a successful and, and really important military figure during the war. And he, he thought of him, I, I, I'm trying to remember the quotation, but he thought of himself as superior. Well, it's, I mean, it's a paraphrase. He talked about how Grant, that he was smarter than Grant, basically. And he probably was smarter than Grant. You know, I know more about, more about strategy than Grant does, more about tactics than Grant does, more about logistics than Grant does. I know more about everything than Grant does. But where he beats me and where he beats the world is that he, Grant, don't give a damn what the enemy is doing out of his sight, but it scares me like hell. That's just, Sherman had self-awareness, which I love about Sherman. McClellan had no self-awareness. He's clueless in that regard. Sherman, he's wonderful. The, the, these, these, these self-critical, self-aware thoughts pour out of his big brain, either to his pen or his mouth. We never wonder what Sherman's really thinking about something because he tells us. And he is not confused about why he is successful. He's successful because Grant, who doesn't give a damn what the enemy is doing out of his sight, frees Sherman to operate because Grant is ultimately responsible for even what Sherman does because he's always above Sherman in the military hierarchy. Hmm. And the person above is the one responsible. Right. So I'm really looking forward to reading the John Marzalak book. I think you'll like it. Yes. Yeah. Um, but let's go to, to Field Order 15. It was only a couple of years ago that I learned about the meeting that was held in Savannah just a few days before it was issued with uh, Edwin Stanton, um, uh, Sherman, and I think it was 19 black leaders. And the black leaders from the area, yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, and it's striking, you know, that they basically, the, I mean, this the scene of this is I mean it's amazing to to contemplate that these two white military leaders are political and and military leaders are are there asking what do you need what do you want yep. and land was the was the number one answer um, so field order fifteen which is the source of that the forty acres and a mule uh, line that people often uh, recite gave land to uh, because of this order Sherman was giving land to people. Uh, along the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. So I I don't know if you if you're you know I mean I imagine you do know the answer, but uh, was was Sherman acting on his own? Was he uh, did is, he have a? This is Sherman's way of dealing with the fact that as he moved through Georgia, thousands of African Americans attached themselves to his army and moved in the wake of his army. This is, it's truly a, an army of liberation moving through, even though that's not its intent. Uh, and we talked earlier about how crucial the army is in the process of emancipation. Here is one aspect of that. He gets to what he, what the special field order allow, he, he grants a, what he called a possessory title to a certain amount of land to black uh, families along the, the uh, coastline and the, and the rivers. He couldn't guarantee what would happen in the long term, and he made that clear. Congress decides in the long term how this might play out. But for now, you have a possessory title to this land, which gave the, the African-Americans, the freed people, the thing they wanted most, gave them away, gave them land. They can actually support themselves here. And it solves his problem of having Black people attach themselves to his army. 
soldiers did not want to have to deal with a bunch of refugees who follow them around. Sherman's not the only one. This is, but this is a famous example of how one commander dealt with it. They have military things to do. They don't want thousands of civilian refugees who are African-American to complicate their lives this way. And this is a way for Sherman to deal with this problem while at the same time giving black people what they want the most. So it's a, it's something, everybody wins from this, uh, from their perspectives in this situation. And just for, I know you know this, but just for the listeners, uh, when Andrew Johnson got his chance, he rescinded that order. That's correct. All those people lost the property. He had a different vision. (laughs) (laughs) Just slightly, slightly. (laughs) Now, I have to give you my, uh, a a bias of mine or a, 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 Perhaps from a scarring experience, uh, I, unlike you, military history never captured my imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that I, 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 I just remember the drone of my sophomore uh, high school teacher talking about <laughs> one battle after another, and none of it meant anything to me. Um, and so, uh, I, I, in a way, I was super pleased when. I watched as the uh, both the state and the AP, the advanced placement curricula, uh, moved away from military. You know, I mean, and the thing is that they they were it, it wasn't a serious understanding of military history. It was what was the turning point, and yeah. <laughs> you know, it was surface level memorization. Right. Yeah. So. I, I'm I'm gonna ask you it's as like a person remembering all the presidents, but not remembering anything else. I can name them in order, but I can't tell you anything or why they mattered. <laughs> I, I'm gonna give you the chance, not that you need it, but I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna ask you to explain why it's so critical that students, even in a a, a survey course like I teach, where maybe I give two weeks uh, to the to the entirety of the Civil War, what why is military history still critically important? It's critically important because you you can't because because you can't understand the Civil War if you don't understand them. It is a war, and the the civilian and military spheres have to be brought together for the war to be intelligible. I think where we have a problem here because most people in my world, most academics, don't want to do anything with military history. They shun military history. Uh, they think that it's sort of you're, you are what you're interested in. If you're interested in military history, you must be a militarist. There is a lot of that still. So a lot of courses in my world do nothing with military history. On the popular side, the non-academic side, they're mainly interested only in military history and mainly drums and bugles military history. I want another biography of Sherman. I've only got five. I've got seven books on Lee. I want nine books on Lee. And I can't have too many on Gettysburg. I've got a whole bookcase, but I'm buying another bookcase. That Those two worlds are both wrong because you have to understand how the civilian, and there you can say political slash social slash economic side of the war intersects with the military side. And if you don't understand that, you will not understand what's going on. And emancipation is a perfect example of that. Emancipation becomes possible where the armies go. You can have the Emancipation Proclamation, but if Union armies don't go deeper into the Confederacy, it has no impact. African-Americans in central Alabama may want to be free in a way we will never understand, but if a United States Army doesn't get relatively close to them, 
the slaveholding society uh, structure will keep them enslaved in central Alabama. So there's what, what happens in elections. The elections are very closely tied to what's going on in the military front. My, my only argument here is you have to come to terms, not with the minutia of battles, but you have to have an awareness of why what happens on the military front has a, has a tremendously important impact behind the lines an impact on who's elected, which in turn has an impact on what legislation gets passed. I mean, it's just, you cannot separate the two and have a meaningful understanding of the war. And you have to have a sense, and I will stop in a minute, but that, that we have to try to recover how important the concept of the citizen soldier was in the mid 19th century and how the citizen soldier really represented the best of the small d democratic republic that the United States was in the minds of people, what the union meant. The union gave things to its citizens and the citizens in turn were expected to give something back and that was military service in a crisis. So you, there really is, it's very important to be able to put these two spheres together, I think, if you wanna make sense of the war. Speaking of citizen soldiers, can we talk a little bit about how bayonets were used in the Civil War? <laughs> What other or purpose... how they were not used? Right. Well, that was what that was yes. what, that struck me from your talk this week. Yes. What other purposes did they serve other than their primary function, the, and why were they actually not used all that often as a weapon? United States citizen soldiers, which is virtually all of the three million uh, soldiers who fought in the Civil War, were citizen soldiers. They weren't regular army soldiers. There, you know, there are twenty five thousand guys in the regular army, and more than three million who are citizen soldiers. Their officers made it very clear that, you, that it was almost impossible to get a, a, a United States citizen or a Confederate citizen soldier to stick somebody with a bayonet. They just wouldn't do it. They had bayonets. They put them on their muskets when they were told to. They you know, pointed them toward the enemy when they were told to in an assault, but they didn't use them. You, what would happen is on a typical Civil War battlefield, either the defenders would give way and withdraw or the assault would be broken before you got close enough to stick somebody with a bayonet. But even if you did get close enough, the chances are that you wouldn't do it. You would probably turn your musket around and hit somebody with the butt of the musket rather than sticking them, sticking them with a bayonet. Soldiers used them as tent pegs. They used them, they put candles in the socket and used them as, as candle holders at night. They'd stick meat on the end of them and cook meat over a fire holding a, a you could do lots of stuff with a bayonet but what you almost never did was stick somebody with one. Regular soldiers, the British soldiers had no problem sticking colonial soldiers with a bayonet. Even regular USO, US soldiers would be more willing to do it, but there, there are hardly any of them. And so it's just uh, all the generals talking about, let's give them cold steel. They never, never gave them cold steel. <laughs> that doesn't happen in the Civil War. Sounds good. Doesn't happen. <laughs> Non-citizens were exempt from conscription, but still yes. served in fairly large numbers, either through volunteering or service as a substitute. Right. Um, and you said that they were subject to significant ethnic and religious prejudices. Can yes, you expand on that? both Germans and Irish, especially the Germans, because there's both the language and then often Catholicism in the mix as well there. How did that, I mean, how did that manifest? I mean, would, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering... You know, did commanding officers not care? Did they not know about it? A lot of commanding it? officers were openly disdainful, especially of Germans. Uh, the, the 11th Corps in the Army, the Potomac, had a very high percentage 
of German soldiers, one of the most famous division commanders in the in uh, the Eleventh Corps was uh, Francis Channing Barlow, who'd been first in his class at Harvard. He was a very good combat officer. He loathed the Germans, just heaped contempt on them when he commanded them, and he was certainly not alone. And the general, uh, the general treatment of Irish was, uh, I mean, the the illustrator, the illustrated magazines often portrayed them as simian, just as they did African Americans. The Irish are drunk, the Irish are papists, the Irish, you know, all of the things. Uh, it was just very common in this Protestant culture to, to heap abuse on the Catholic part of the population. And the Catholics are mainly Irish and Germans. They make up about, there are about 4 million of them uh, by 1860 out of 31 and a half million people. It, it's interesting, a lot of the ethnic soldiers believed that fighting for the Union I'll go with the union side, would really give them the firmest possible claim to equal citizenship in every way and would help overcome some of the prejudices. But in fact, it didn't. And they became very unhappy. They were often blamed. They were blamed at Chancellorsville. The 11th Corps was again at at Gettysburg for not doing well. It wasn't fair to them, but they were. It actually uh, sort of hardened some of these ethnic lines rather than breaking them down. They served in very large numbers, as you noted. 25% of all the men who fought for the United States in the Civil War were born outside the United States. And so that that's incredible. That And that, was, that, that would be through primarily then through enlistment. Yes, primarily through enlistment. Although there were, the, the, the United States did sort of send recruiting agents to Ireland. I mean, looking for guys who would be willing to come and, and come. But, but that's, not, that's not the most common there. If you're really poor, part of this is a function of, of class. If you're a really poor person and if you go in the army, you, have, you get regular pay, you get clothing, you get fed. And that that is a way, a kind of a bridge towards something else that you might want to do later. Uh, the U.S. Army was made up disproportionately of foreign-born men, both before the war and after the war. All those John Ford movies where they're all the Irishmen in the regular army, those are true. Uh, a lot of them would join the army, go out west and desert. That's a way to get somewhere and then just kind of start fresh out there. There, The desertion rate in the U.S. Army, the U.S. Army, often approached 30%. 30% in a single year, both before the war and after the war. What was it in the Confederacy? The, now, that's non-Civil War. The Confederacy, the overall desertion oh. rate was about 15%. The U.S. desertion rate, about 12%. That's mainly volunteers. I'm talking about the regular army before and after the war, filled with a lot of immigrants. <laughs> now, um, when I cover the derailing of Reconstruction, uh, I examined the notion that for some black people trapped in unfair sharecropping contracts or even worse. Or um, debt peonage even, even worse. Yeah. That. Right. Or, or uh, convict leasing places sure. like Parchment Farm. Yeah. yeah. Um, life. Uh, I mean, I, I use the Thomas Nast. Um, I mean, also with the Klan and so forth. Uh, the Thomas Nast political cartoon, which says worse than slavery. Uh, I'm guessing you uh, would say that's going too far to diminish the significance uh, of the Reconstruction Amendments. I, I do think it's going too far. And of course, the great NAS cartoon, it has Nathan Bedford Forrest. It has a, a Simeon Irishman. And it, I mean, it, he really has his his cluster of villains. They're so powerful. NAST was a genius. Uh, he really was. No, yes, I do think that's going too far. I think that however bad 
Reconstruction became, and it really is post-Reconstruction when it becomes the worst. Um, I think there's a difference between, and now parchment is one thing, but that's not most of the that's not most of the African American population. I think there's a big difference between being a sharecropper who has a really bad deal, and being someone whose children can be sold, and who can be sent away and never see the rest of your family again. Or who could, I just think there's a difference there. And I think that black people certainly would have understood that. However bad their situation was, it wasn't the same. And for and in terms of reconstruction, even though it's still a very racist country by our standards, you do get the 14th and 15th Amendments, and those don't go away. Even in the depth of Jim Crow, they're still on the books and they can still be applied when the nation has the resolve to apply them. So I yes, I would just take a little more optimistic view than you do about that. Would you say that, I mean, do you think that that comes from um, historians trying to, uh, you know, to, to connect it to present day political, Absolutely. political yeah, situation? I yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Um, when, when people compare the incarceration state now to slavery, my head explodes because slavery is everybody. If you're a black person, if you're an enslaved person in the antebellum South, it's only a tiny percentage of people your color who are not literally enslaved. And as bad as the incarceration state has gotten at different ports in our, in, points in our history, it has never approached that. So there, I think you can make the case about how awful the one is without trying to compare it to the one that is by any reasonable standard far more awful than the one. It's like when people, you know, compare everything to Hitler and Nazis now. That <laughs> makes my head explode too. Yeah. Okay, yeah. if he is a Hitler, then what is Hitler? I mean, I, anyway, I just, I think we go to DEFCON 1 too often now. Yeah. I think we can throttle back a little. Well, that it, it, it circles back to the, to the, you know, the historical complexity. I mean, I, I used to use Shades of Grey uh, until it, that got ruined. Uh, but... <laughs> And I hated when that got ruined because that is a, that, and I still, I am just enough of a contrarian. I refuse to give up Shades of Grey because Shades yeah. of Grey is exactly descriptive and pertinent. And we shouldn't let one, anyway, yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I've waited long enough for my students to no longer know what that is. So I can come back. I can start using it again. Is that shelf life about over with now? Are I, they young enough now so they don't really? I think so. I think so. I mean, at different points in my life, I hated having to give up references to Lyndon Johnson and then to Ronald Reagan and then to Bill Clinton just to some, because as time march, marches on, students don't they they don't know who any of these people are. It <laughs> or yeah, they're, they're, it's not loaded with a particular set of. No, they don't pick up yeah. all the things that I would want them to pick up. You can't be subtle with them and just have them kind of smile when they. Anyway, it, it's. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we got two more questions. Okay, um, all right. The first one is the uh, the moment for me uh, during the course of this week that I had my my biggest epiphany, I suppose, had to do with. Uh, it wasn't anything I didn't know, but uh, it just really sunk in was the lost cause revisionism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I think that there, are, what, what I think struck me was that there were some things that I've taught that I didn't even know were necessarily born out of that. Yeah, and, that and, happens. and in a way, not even like, 
is anything that's obvious. I'm blanking on what what it was, but it you know something that wasn't you know teaching that particular thing wouldn't a student isn't going to suddenly believe in is going to become racist or you know no. or, or believe or believe that slavery wasn't the cause of the civil war right right but the the how you know historiography how you know how things are manipulated um and, and is fascinating and i know i have to do a better job with that so i want to ask you um how have you approached um teaching how in a way, you could argue. One could argue, maybe this is overblown, that in terms of constructed memory, the Confederacy might well have won the war. Well, they were certainly very good at what they did. I don't think they really won the war, but they they won the battle of memory in significant ways for a very long time, and uh, which is why, from the first day of my class to the end, I, I one of my one of the light motifs in my course is. You have to always juxtapose memory against history and be aware. And a couple of the ways the lost cause has one of the what one of the insidious uh, influences is in this question of whether United States victory was inevitable. One of the main things the lost cause argued was we never could have won. The Yankees had too much of everything. Well, that that over time was disassociated from a lost cause argument and just became a sort of given in the war. Of course, and Gettysburg is another one. It was former Confederates who focused on Gettysburg relentlessly after the war, made Gettysburg this great moment of truth when so much, when if, and so it's, it has been successful in a number of ways that aren't necessarily, certainly to the unwary, linked directly to the lost cause, not like, yeah. you know, standing under a Confederate flag and saying it wasn't ever about slavery. I mean, some of them are much more obvious than some of the other ones. Right, like the high water mark. That yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, and it doesn't seem to be connected to the lost cause at all, really. And yet, and yet, it is. Yeah. All right. So my final question for you, uh, and I just added this one, so you haven't. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, you know, there's a million different people, the stories of, of individuals that are are fascinating, and I'm I'm gonna take a, a sometime in August, I'm gonna take a journey into Shermanville, but um, can you give can you give us three people that are not household names that have particularly interesting stories, you know, whether they're unsung heroes or villains or, 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 or shades of gray, you know, somebody, you know, that would, that people would find compelling. Okay. I'll give you one is a, is a woman named Elizabeth Van Lu that no one has heard of who was from the slave, a white woman from the South, from a very comfortable family who became a key union agent in Richmond during the war, helped African-Americans escape, passed information on to the United States, uh, and, 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 and constructed this persona that a lot of her neighbors just, they called her Crazy Bet and just sort of accepted her as being crazy, but not being what, was, what she really was, excuse me, was really being. So I think Elizabeth, and she left it, you, there's a good book about her by a historian, a really good historian named Elizabeth Barron. Uh, but also she left, she had a diary. Okay, so Elizabeth Van Loo would be one. I think a very interesting one, and I mentioned her in class, I mentioned her diary in class, is Charlotte Thornton, yeah. uh, who is from a free black family, grew, grew up in the North, a really privileged uh, black family, but went down to the Sea Islands off South Carolina as a teacher 
uh, when the United States gained control and left a wonderful diary that not, and it's a big fat diary that was edited uh, in the in the 1980s and published uh, in the 1980s. I think I think it's she get, lets you get at all kinds of things, including the fact she lets you can't just think of all black people as all black people. They're very different. She's a very different kind of black person than I think many uh, students might be ready to deal with. Now she's very well educated, very articulate, dis, dis, and, and sort of very snobby and judgmental in some ways toward Gullah culture, but really embracing other, it's really fascinating. It's just interesting. It's complicated with Charlotte Fortin's. Okay, so there you've got two. This, but I should pick some guy now. What guy should I pick <laughs> people to? Um, boy, oh boy. Um, well, you know what I would have them do? I guess I would pick a photographer as my other person. And I would have them look at a photographer, either George Barnard or... Uh, I would and I and I could pick two or three. They're all northern. Timothy O'Sullivan, an Irishman who is a a, a, a famous northern photographer, and use their. No, I'd use Alexander Gardner. I would. I'd just go with the obvious here. Alexander Gardner is a photographer who took some of the most iconic shots of the war and arranged some of the most iconic shots of the war. They're not even what he said they were, but his <laughs> images had a had had an electric effect across the north people had never seen an actual image from they had their notions of battlefields were paintings and woodcuts alexander gardner brought the war into their parlors and his photographic sketchbook a colleague and i taught a course uh on civil war voices here steve cushman he's in the english department we used gardner it's very successful i'd use gardner as somebody most people haven't heard of Everybody's heard of Matthew Brady or a lot of people. Brady didn't take any of these photographs. The guys who worked for him took them. And and wow. and Gardner and his t and his sketchbook, photographic sketchbook of the war. There's there are my three: Charlotte Fortin, Alexander Gardner, and Elizabeth Van Loo. Fantastic, Gary. Thank you so much for your uh, generosity of your time, and uh, I've learned so much, and I'm sure my listeners will will as well. I th I this was big fun for me, Bob. I'm delighted to do it. <laughs> <laughs>